one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. This is Talking Space episode 524 for the week of Monday, August 5th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, sir. It's going to be a busy night. Can't wait to dig in. Yes, it is. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Time flies. Indeed it does. So let's get flying. And to start off, we are going to begin with breaking news as of this recording date. Gene? Yeah, thanks, Sawyer. Um, about uh, 5.25 this afternoon as we're recording this, again, it's uh, Monday, August 5th, Keith Cowling over at uh, NASA Watch released a really interesting bombshell. Apparently, it was announced that Lori Garver, who is the Deputy Administrator of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, will be leaving her post effective September 6th. Uh, there will be a formal announcement placed on the NASA website most likely tomorrow, uh, but uh, uh, Tuesday as we record this. But uh, there's no word yet on who might be uh, replacing Lori or anything like that. Uh, my bet is, and, and Keith is also speculating here, is that uh, the White House may not want to go through some sort of you know, confirmation hearing or anything like that. Um, he's speculating that, um, you know, Dan Golden ran the show without a deputy administrator for the longest time. So this might not be a, you know, be a, an impediment. One of the people he is speculating that might be able to replace Lori or looking at might be able to replace Lori is, uh, Robert Lightfoot, who's, um, uh, one who is currently an associate administrator right now. But, um, to confirm again, as as the night went on here, um, he writes here. I'm looking at the NASA Watch website about 6 p.m., uh, saying that uh, Lori is heading off to lead the Airline Pilots Association, uh, which is a nonprofit group. And then finally, at eight, eight o'clock tonight, Lori apparently did release some sort of statement um, internally, which Keith apparently got a hold of. And did post on the site. I'm not going to read read the whole thing, but she basically says that uh, uh, she is definitely leaving the post on September 6th, and you know, a formal announcement will probably go out on the NASA on the NASA website with all the details. Uh, she says it's been great working with everybody, uh, uh, the, uh, everyone at NASA, and, and thank you for all the support. Uh, but she also said that she's extraordinarily excited to take on the new challenge that that uh, lies ahead. And as a, a personal note, I kind of worked with Lori back uh, in the uh, 
early 90s, both Lori and her, uh, her husband, David Brandt, uh, they are probably two of the better people on the planet. Um, I may have had some disagreements with Lori in, in the areas of space policy, and that's okay. That, that's what, what this country is all about. And, uh, but, you know, is, is differences of opinion. But, um, uh, they are probably two of the better people on the planet. And I'm wishing Lori all success and the family all success and with, uh, Lori's new endeavor. So Godspeed to you, Lori. Thanks for everything you did over at NASA and, and looking forward to, to hearing more from you when you're in your new position. Yeah. I mean, my encounters with her have been nothing but nice. She's been absolutely great. I've met her many times, especially, uh, at events up in New York and she's been a real pleasure, a real help as well when it comes to information and interviews and requests and things like that. Really sad to see Lori go. And honestly, at this point, I don't really think it matters who fills in for her. Because at this point, NASA's in such a state that whoever's in there is going to have a tough time, to be honest. Well, yeah, plus you've got another, what, um, it's it's 2013 right now. By the time, you know, a new, new a deputy administrator gets confirmed and all that, um, the Obama administration really has another, what, two and a half years left in it. Uh, I, I don't know. They may just decide to fly without one for a little while uh, or uh, just name uh, an individual pro tem uh, to replace Lori. But uh, again, this is uh, to, to echo your word, Sawyer. Uh, they are they're, they're really a, a, you know, both her and uh her husband, David Brandt, are really some, some, they're good people in plain English. And I'm, I'm wishing, seriously, I'm, I'm wishing them all the best. Just another uh, quick comment for me. Uh, having worked for the Federal Aviation Administration for a long, long time, I've seen a lot of uh, FAA administrators and, and, and number two, you know, to their, to their level deputy administrator you know, come and go, same thing with the Department of Transportation that we're part of. And I think at the upper levels of, of management within the federal government, there do tend to be uh, movement from job to job. And I I wouldn't discount the fact that there's probably a, a bit of an advantage in that and that it brings a different perspective to a lot of different agencies. Um, so I remember being surprised one time when a FAA administrator came from the airline industry. And I remember thinking, wow, that's really interesting. And so I'd certainly hope the same for, uh, for Ms. Garver and her future endeavors, that she'll bring something to where she goes that, you know, another organization wouldn't have without her. And uh, the same thing for NASA as, as people move around. I think it's uh, something where there is a potential for a gain on all parts. Uh, another thing I, I just noticed, she's going from, you know, from NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, to an aviation nonprofit. Now, you know, she has some really big experience working with some nonprofits, including National Space Society. Uh, but it's interesting, too, that she's going from a, you know, an area where she's, you know, in, in a in a space-related area to an aviation area. And I think maybe... That too, as you put put it, may bring a fresh perspective to the airline pilots association. So again, good luck, all the best. And I'll give you another surprise: uh, an astronaut that I had hoped to talk to a while back, but it didn't work out because of a new job assignment. 
was uh, Pam Melroy. She was in the FAA Office of Commercial Space. And uh, she was, I believe, the assistant, I uh, forget the terminology for for uh, for rank within that office, but she was the number two person for, for running that part of the FAA. And she is now with DARPA in their, I believe, the Tactical Technology Office. And so people do move, sure enough. Exactly. Wherever she goes, I honestly think that she's going to do a great job if she's if she does anything as good as she did while she was at NASA for a short time. So all the best of luck to Lori Garver. Alrighty then. So let's continue on to some news that is well a little less breaking, but still that happened pretty recently. And that is another rocket launch. And that is the launch of the H-2B, which if you don't know is a Japanese rocket, which carried up the HTV-4 this past weekend, launching at 3.48 p.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, August 3rd. That resupply mission to the International Space Station, if all goes well, will be grappled by the space station's robotic arm and then berthed to the ISS on August 9th. And it was a beautiful launch. Everything went absolutely perfectly once again, and a great launch by JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. Yeah, sorry. The, I, I was watching the launch Saturday afternoon, and uh, it's interesting to see that particular uh, booster fly because it, as, as it uh, makes the run uphill, it sort of screams. And Mark, I, if you recall when, when um, Curiosity's um, uh, Atlas V launched, it was a almost almost a similar kind of you know scream, if you will, if you remember the sound from that. But it, this thing was, was really pronounced when it made that that yell uphill. Um, it was it was definitely letting you know that uh, that something was happening. Right, uh, which so. I, I I just gotta play that because it's just it, it's a weird high pitched whining almost. It it can't be yeah, described. Yeah, it really you just is. Have to, you just have to listen to it. It can't be described, so go ahead and take a listen to it. With the Kono 34 on board from the Tanegashima Space Center at 4.48.46 a.m. on August 4, 2013, Japan Standard Time. And 35 seconds into the flight and the familiar scream of the HTV as it heads uphill. After liftoff, the launch vehicle operation control was shifted from the blockhouse to the range control center. Yeah, so... Uh, again, it, 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 the, the the booster in that respect is really really unique, uh, and and so seeing this, especially just at, at dawn or just just before dawn, was, was kind of neat too. Um, it it added a little bit more to the to the uh, uh, to the whole event, but uh, yeah, HTV HTV four is is heading up at a time where there there's going to be a lot of traffic at the ISS. Uh, we have you know. Yeah, the um, uh, the uh, uh, ESA's ATV, which has just recently docked. Uh, we had progress. We had, we had a uh, progress module from from Russia that just docked recently, and now we're going to have HTV four also docking. Um, and it has has a finite time. I think Sawyer, it's going to stay until September fourth. And the reason behind that is obviously. Uh, to clear the deck for um, the uh, orbital sciences Cygnus uh, uh, test uh, demo flight uh, to make sure that it also has a has a clear uh, area to to dock to and, and approach to. Um, so 
it's going to be a pretty busy time on 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 the ISS. I think um, uh, HTV four docs fr- this coming Friday, right, sir? Correct. That is August 9th, and that is at eleven twenty nine GMT. Since, yeah, we've, since we've been terrible at using GMT time, I should mention the <laughs> launch also then was 1948 GMT. Thanks, sir. Yeah, and I believe uh, Karen Nyberg is going to be uh, doing the honors on uh, Canada Arm 2 this time and uh, going to go ahead and grapple uh, HTV4 and bring it on into the uh, to the ISS. I think it's carrying about uh, 3.6 tons of uh, supplies and and various various unsundries up to uh, up to the crew, so it, it's it's going to be definitely a busy time uh, on the ISS for sure. Exactly, and just for the weight, uh, it's loaded with eleven thousand nine hundred pounds of equipment according to Spaceflight Now. So wow, that, that's a heavy bugger. And again, it's only going to be there for a month, but it's kind of interesting some of the things inside of it. Like there's an ultra high resolution camera for a common ISON pass. Uh, there's also four CubeSats, which have become big, these very small mini-satellites that'll be launched out of the Kibo module, and, uh, it's just a couple of the cool things that are on, and I know, Gene, you've got a bunch more cool things that are going up. Oh, yeah, sorry, thank you. The, um, there are, there are two other, other things of note that I'm going to mention here real fast. Uh, one is, uh, for, uh, a flight that, uh, for a piece of equipment that actually the uh, space shuttle Atlantis carried up on her last flight on STS-135, it's delivering what's called a task board uh, for the robotic refueling mission. Um, for those of you who aren't aware of what that is, it's essentially this this big cube-like tinker toy. I guess is is really the the only way I can describe it, uh, with different end effectors on on this large cube. And those end effectors are really uh, sort of ports for uh, satellite refueling. And the whole idea behind the robotic refueling mission is to see if, you know, something can be attached to these things and could a satellite be actually refueled while it's in orbit. The whole idea is to go ahead and, and extend the life of the satellite, extend the useful life of the satellite, or um, once that useful life has ended, possibly to go ahead and just give it just enough fuel so it could be uh, re-entered, you know, over an area where it wouldn't be, you know, a harm to uh, anybody on the ground. So thus also reducing the, uh, the likelihood of any buildup of uh, orbital debris. But um, this task board again will be will be placed on I guess onto that uh, onto that tinker toy if you will that large cube like device that's sitting out there on uh, on the ISS right now uh, for future experimentation. But the big celebrity, if you will, for this is a um, a little bit of an experiment that uh, uh, I guess the I guess Toyota is going to be conducting. Um, it's not uh, exactly. Uh, well, they're, they're trying to go, go ahead and figure out how humans and robots will interact in the future. And uh, so they, the Toyota companies built this little diminutive little robot that went up on HTV4. It's called Kirobo. Um, and uh, the, the objective of this is to allow um, uh, Koichi Wakata, a uh, 
JAXA astronaut from the Japan uh, Space Agency who's due up in November to start, well, talking to this guy and interacting with this robot. And the robot is supposed to interact with him back. And the idea is to try to basically get an idea of how humans and robots can go ahead and interact in the future. Now, um, this little guy has a, has a partner uh, back, uh, back home on Earth. Uh, called Murata that will also be kind of sort of keeping him and keeping its robotic friend on the ISS in check. But, um, you know, it, the whole idea really is to just, you know, see how our, you know, how robots and humans will interact going forward. Uh, the best example I can give uh, is like, say, if we're going to have uh, robots in our home cleaning our house and doing, you know, doing all kinds of things that we, you know, think are menial jobs right now, um, just I'm going to really, really, you know, blow some memory banks here. Just think Rosie from the Jetsons. If you're younger than that, look it up. Um, and, uh, you know, if we're going to have something like that, sort of a robotic maid kind of sort of cleaning up our house and interacting with us, how is how is that interaction going to occur? And that's what this robot here is going to be studying. So it's going to be kind of really interesting to hear how this is, works out. The thing is, it, it can't, it, unless you speak Japanese, it's not going to be able to interact with any of the other crew members. And I think it's, it's attuned to, uh, to uh, Koichi Wakata only. Uh, I'd have to check that to make sure. But um, he's going to be the principal investigator on this. So it'll be, it'll be kind of uh, interesting to see what happens. Uh, as a result of, of of this particular experiment, can anybody say Hal? Yes, that's exactly either that or or you know the joke with the Cylons. We know all know how that this is going to end up, you know, and um, you know I for one welcome our cybernetic overlords and all that stuff. But uh, uh, again, the future is is here, guys. I mean, you know, and and we've we're going to have to learn how to how to how this. How how did how we're going to interact with with our creations, if you will? Right, because I know that I think of um, I can't remember the exact one, but there is the Japanese robot on Earth that was created that walks and talks and can climb Asimo. stairs. Yes, thank you, Asimo. Yeah, he he was built by Honda, and I believe, um, however, if you look at Robonaut Two as compared to Asimo, um, Robonaut Two is is far more of a sophisticated critter than uh than asimo is in fact i believe they tried to use asimo as a guide at one point and it didn't quite work out the way they wanted it to um he 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 just did not get uh uh you know the questions correctly and was just sort of staying on script and if anybody kind of asked him a question that was sort of off script from what what the thing was programmed for it really didn't know how to handle it and it started skipping the voice and so on and so forth. It was a train wreck. Um, so this, stuff like this may go ahead and help prevent that in the future. And I think that's what they're, they're, they're aiming for with this. Plus, keep in mind, ASMO was made back in 2000, and Robonaut is a little bit newer, the late 2000s. And now you've got 2013 technology where it's only 13 inches tall and we'll be holding a conversation with the Japanese astronaut in space. Yay, yeah, science! Yeah, amen. 
Alrighty then, so we'll be looking forward to seeing that in December, and all of the supplies that are brought up when HDV is birthed to the station on Friday. Speaking of cool technology and things, let's go to Mark for an awesome plane. Yeah, how about we talk about flutter control, and I'm not talking about the pitter-patter of my beating heart, but let's talk about the X-56A. Of course, first thing I got to do is confuse you with some terminology, but we'll start out with cool. Okay, Lockheed Martin Skunk Works. How about Air Force Research Laboratory? And how about NASA? Okay, and what this is all about is the X-56A, the multi-user technology testbed. It's an aircraft, and what they hope to accomplish with this is to develop some future fuel-efficient transport and unmanned aircraft with very slender, flexible wings. This X-56A has made its first test flight from NASA's Dryden Flight Research Center, their Edwards Air Force Base, and this is not a big airplane. We think of, of NASA and uh, the other participants in test programs as having these massive, powerful, screaming through the skies aircraft. And, and back in the day, the X-15 is the, is the kind of the, the gold star uh, one that I always think of. This X-56A is a 28-foot wingspan. The aircraft weighs 480 pounds. It's unmanned. And its purpose is to test this aircraft on the edge of its flight envelope at the point where there, there's instability, there's risk of damage due to flutter of the airframe. If you think about vehicles that you've been on going down the street and maybe some buses or, or different transports that, that have extremely stiff suspension, you think of the hammering that you get sometimes on a rough road and rough surface. Well, the, the same things are happening in the air. Air is not always smooth, and anyone that's flown at times has hit those clear air turbulence, those rough pockets of air. I've listened uh, often on radio frequencies that I'm monitoring or, or evaluating and hear uh, airline pilots conversing back and forth with controllers giving ride reports, you know, uh, telling them uh, there's some rough air ahead of you at 31,000. Would you like to go up or down and see if it's better? Things like that. Well, this this aircraft for flutter control tests, the idea is to develop some new technology to allow the airframe to be lighter, to increase the fuel efficiency of the aircraft. And they're talking about a 25% reduction in the structural weight of the wing, a 30 to 40% increase in the aspect ratio, ratio to reduce drag, and using active control to, to, to suppress the flutter of these slender, flexible, you know, to me looks like fragile wings. It, it sort of reminds me of the uh, first aircraft to, to make that nonstop flight around the world, uh, Voyager. I mean, the air, aircraft in no way resembles that, but these great big long wings, and of course, recently that that solar aircraft that uh, that we saw. So they've built a couple of fuselages. They've got multiple wings. The wings can be replaced. If the wings fail in flight, they've got a, a, a fuselage-mounted ballistic uh, airframe recovery parachute. So it launches the, the parachute, parachute deploys, and floats the fuselage down the ground much better than an uncontrolled splash into the desert. 
But uh, they got some things they're hoping to accomplish. It's powered by a couple of small turbojets that planned to fly last year. Uh, however, it just made its first flight, so NASA is moving on. And, and you wonder, well, how is this part of NASA? If you want to look at, like I just did, I looked at a uh, one of their web pages, and it is aeronautics.nasa.gov. And I find more interesting things, some of which you hear about and then kind of forget, and some other things that I didn't know about. But this aeronautics.nasa.gov has a lot of interesting things. And their job is to help with the nation's air transportation system, air traffic congestions, uh, to make to help with safety and environmental uh, impacts, to reduce those impacts and make improvements. So another, another one of the interesting things that NASA's got going on. Again, the uh, Mark, thanks for the reminder. As far as the uh, the uh, A and you know that one, that first A in NASA standing for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Uh, that's one of the. I mean, NASA was a, an aeronautics agency when it when it started. It was a you know called the National Advisory Council for for aeronautics, and um, it's it's good to see that that you know we haven't forgotten that that uh, the agency is pressing ahead and trying to make uh, you know, aviation and, and space flight a, a lot, uh, lot more efficient. So a great, great piece, Mark. Thanks. Exactly. You, you said it best right there. So many people forget that NASA isn't just space, and that's why, Mark, love having you on the team with all of your aviation insight. Uh, hey, I just like pretty airplanes, and they've got uh, – Pictures of future aircraft, I won't even go into that now. And it's like, oh, I want one of those. Gee, could I just have a picture of that? Uh, just fun stuff. Who doesn't like a pretty aircraft? Oh, yeah. Thank you very much, Mark. All right, so that brings us to the end of round one. And we now move on to round number two. And for this one, um, we're going to take some trips to some NASA centers on round two. And we're going to start off at the Ames Research Center in California. Now, there was this great photo project that was done by someone named Ved, and I'm going to totally butcher the name, um, Ved Churayath. And he's an aeronautics and astronautics graduate student and an amateur photographer. And he figured, hey, let's do something promotional for NASA and specifically what we're doing here at Ames. Got a whole bunch of NASA groupies together, and they dressed up like Vikings, and it's a great picture of them dressed up like Vikings heading in towards the sunlight as if they're going into battle, almost for battle of the promotion of what NASA is doing. There's little CubeSats hanging from the ceiling, and it's a great image. Well, I guess there were some people who didn't think it was great, in particular one senator from Iowa, and that is Senator Charles Grassley, who saw the image and said, um, wait a minute. He went right to Charlie Bolden and said, we need to investigate this because I think that that misused the Ames funds and staff time and that it was done in a way that was disruptive to typical government work. After a government investigation, there was no official statement that was released. However, from headquarters, NASA News Chief Allard Butel did say 
that there were, quote, no taxpayer funds used, end quote, for the Space Vikings picture. Again, quote, the employees were on their time, not on work time, end quote. Now, this was done after some research into the matter and an investigation. Keep in mind, the photos cost nothing, and if their concern was wasting government funds, well, they did it by investigating. The investigation cost more than it would have to even do the photo. I, I just think this is sad, and I think it's a big misrepresentation of what NASA's doing, the fact that there's the whole budget battle going on. I know I said last episode I wouldn't talk about it, but with the whole budget battle going on, I mean, they'll look at any excuse that they can. I think some people define ways that there's a government agency wasting money and giving an excuse to cut it. So even a simple, silly, great outreach picture, I, I just think it's way out of line. Well, our, to, to throw in a little bit more history on this, um, yeah, this the the gentleman you're talking about that that kind of sort of spearheaded this whole whole idea. The uh, he's a he's an aeronautics grad student over at Stanford University, and he's an amateur photographer and just absolutely loves photography. Um, he had a a, a grant apparently uh, from Stanford to to do something kind of interesting, and uh, that's where the money for this whole thing kind of sort of came from, and. Uh, the whole idea was to say, hey, maybe we could go ahead and get this photo shoot together. And he had this idea since, you know, there's a lot of marshland in the area and so on. He had this idea of, you know, Vikings hitting the beach and and going forth to conquer. And the idea, too, was to depict some of the, the NASA associates um, in that kind of sort of Viking spirit going after, you know, great discoveries and, and, and exploring and doing great things. Um it, as you pointed out, Sawyer, you know, once sort of the, the, you know, the stuff hit the fan, um, an in, internal investigation did happen. But, um, the reason why this whole thing really, really got it, got, uh, uh, Senator Grassley's attention, and I'm looking at a con, uh, is other government agencies in the past, you know, the IRS, there's another government agency out there that's supposed to be a watchdog on waste and so on. They, I mean, I think the IRS did recently this 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 Star Trek parody for a training video, um, which was done on uh, on company time with company resources, or should I say, you know, on the taxpayer dime with taxpayer resources. And there's been you know so much. You you've always heard you know about other government agencies doing this. And as you pointed out, Sawyer, there is a huge budget battle looming, and there is a huge budget battle going on. And um, when uh, this kind of sort of hit the fan, Senator Charles Grassley, again from uh, Republican Iowa, uh, in his defense, he basically said, hey, is the taxpayer dollar really being spent on something that it really needs to be spent on because of the track record other government agencies have had in the past with dealing with all of this mess. And uh, that, I mean, um, to, um, I'm looking at a, uh, a note, again, that was obtained uh, from NASA Watch, uh, where Grassley writ had written uh, 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 Administrator Bolden on the whole thing. And I'm going to quote from the letter here. 
uh, quote, in order to better understand the participation of NASA employees and resources for this for this for for profit photography exhibit. Please respond to the following questions. One, when did you become aware of the photo shoot? Was this a NASA sanctioned photo shoot? And if so, who authorized the participation of the of the employees? Was NASA Public Affairs made aware of the participation of these employees in the photo shoot? How many NASA employees or contractors took place in the shoot? Um, will NASA receive any any funds from Stanford or the photographer? And aside from the employees' you know, official time, were any other NASA resources used in the execution of the project, including but not limited to government vehicles for transportation, uh, construction materials for props or computers for processing the images. I think he had actually some legitimate questions there. Um, but he himself didn't understand that this was all funded from a Stanford grant. And um, uh, it really did not have anything to do with the National Aeronautics and Space Administration other than the subject of the photo. Uh, my personal opinion on this whole thing this was a non-story from the get-go because of the fact that, indeed, it was all paid for by Stanford. NASA associates were on their own own time doing this um, and were not on the company dime. No you know, NASA uh, resources were used in, in, in the photo shoot whatsoever. Um, I believe even the props for the CubeSats were... were brought out of mothballs somewhere. I don't exactly remember. One of the, one of the articles that I read did mention where those, those CubeSat, uh, you know, stand-ins kind of came from. Uh, but they didn't come from NASA. But, um, in Grassley's defense, he, t- he was looking at the behavior of past government agencies, uh, and said, Hey, are we looking at the same thing here? Um, and with an extraordinarily contentious budget battle that's about ready to uh, to become evident as far as the NASA budget is concerned, you know, it's fasten your seatbelts. We'll be watching that one closely. Um, I think Grassley had some justi- justifiable concerns, but um, instead of making the huge deal out of it that it sort of became, I mean, this thing sort of, you know completely and totally outgrew its presidium and became a full-fledged, you know, <laughs> full-fledged task of the of the theater of the of the absurd. Um it had some just, you know, some discreet in- inquiries just been made between um Bolden and Grassley. I think, you know, maybe this could have just gone away without the big flack that it turned out to be. Okay, time for me to get on my soapbox. I wish politicians and bureaucrats would mind their own business because, and this is something we could do a whole show on, you think of uh, Google. You've heard of Google having what they call 20% time where employees can, it enables their engineers to spend one day a week working on projects that are not necessarily in their job descriptions. I read a blog here that says should uh, should your business offer 20% time. And they talk about this not being a new thing. This has its roots back as far as 1939, where 3M offered some similar perks to their employees. I don't think when you've got a workforce that's 
there that's dedicated that wants to do a job that you need to stand over them and scrutinize every single thing they do. They need to have some time to be creative. They need to have some time to learn some new things, to be exposed to new things. And that isn't necessarily doing the routine day in and day out, day in and day out part of their jobs. There needs to be some freedom. There needs to be some latitude. There needs to be some trust. And if the government would and the politicians would just get off of this thing of, well, we have to make sure we're getting our money's worth and that the employees are not wasting resources and taxpayer dollars. If they just get off of that and let people do their job and tell them, say, hey, you mess up, we'll find somebody to do it better than you, cheaper than you. Be responsible. Be grown up. Instead, we're looking over everybody's shoulder, we're scrutinizing everybody to the nth degree, and we're costing ourselves more money than we'll ever save with this kind of scrutiny. Off soapbox. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. <laughs> I, I I put my mic on mute, Mark, because I was just applauding through that entire thing. That was wonderful. I couldn't have said that better. Bravo. And and this is coming from a government employee that has, because of the job that I do, I have the freedom to do my job and to do it the best I can day in and day out. I have no complaints other than with some of the money side of things. As far as personal freedom and responsibility, I think I've got a, a great balance, and I think the workforce that I'm part of has a great balance to uh, to do well. And I think we do well, as evidenced by the safety statistics in the U.S. for the air carrier and other parts of the industry. Uh, however, it could be better. It could be better. And I'm sure any agency, any government employee would look and say, you know, we do a lot of things right. We do a few things wrong, but there's better ways of uh, better ways of improving than with more rules and more requirements and more programs. I can't top that. Enough said. <laughs> I really can't. Exactly. I think you've pretty much summarized all of our thoughts here. And if you can sum it up better than Mark, or if you have your own thoughts on it, please send them to us. Alrighty then. Well, Mark, don't get off your soapbox too soon yet, because we got to travel to another NASA center, and I believe you're going to be taking us there since you're the FAA guy. Well, here we go. Let's go to NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, the other mission control center. Well, we think of International Space Station and back in the shuttle program days. We think of mission control as being at Houston. Yep, you betcha. But did you know that NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center has a payload operations integration center. On June 19th of this year, they completed some upgrades to the payload ops control room where controllers have been commanding science experiments around the clock 365 days a year since 2001. Some of these new capabilities are, are things like a large high-resolution video wall with 24 55-inch screens that gives them capability of sharing information amongst the team, such as live video, diagrams, photographs of experiments, displays that uh, experiment with power use or with data acquisition from the scientific experiments that are going on. It allows me to view multiple data and video feeds and more experiments 
with more than 200 investigations that are going on at the station at any time, it's important that they be able to share information rapidly amongst the ground team members. Now, when we talk of mission control for the International Space Station, it is an international effort, and it also includes centers around the world. Along with the control center at Houston and the ops center in Huntsville, there's also centers that they work in tandem with in Canada, Russia, Japan, Germany, France, Italy, Belgium, Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. And these things are being kept smoothly. In fact, recently they completed, they've actually exceeded a goal of over 37 hours of crew tended science per week across a most recent six-month period. So they're doing some phenomenal things. They've even helped them to achieve uh, a record of 72 hours of crew tended science during a single week. So here at Marshall, they have this new payload operations integration center, and I'm glad that they got it when they did, because who knows what the future holds. There's so much discouraging stuff that it's great to see things that, that are upgraded and improved. And of course, this didn't start today. This is something that has no doubt taken years to plan and budget and accomplish. And they're online since June. And, uh, and doing good things at NASA Marshall. Not bad for a center that uh, somebody um, wanted to close a while back. Um, just uh, of note, uh, Representative Donna Edwards of uh, uh, Democrat Maryland uh, put forward a uh, sort of an amendment a few weeks ago, uh, suggesting that they that NASA go ahead and do exactly what the military did a while back ago and close some bases to try to go ahead and. Uh, you know, shore up uh, funds and what have you. Um, NASA and Marshall was on uh, uh, Representative Edwards' hit list. She then withdrew the uh, uh, the amendment, but uh, under fire and under duress. And she gave some, you know, what she thought were some rather cogent descriptions for uh, for doing so. But um, indeed, this was <laughs> this. You know, I, I would hate to think that that all that work would, would have gone down the drain, um, and uh, we would not have that state of the art facility, Mark, that you had mentioned. If if this actually happened, so yay, you're absolutely right. I'm glad it did happen when it did. Yeah, there is a ray of sunshine here and there. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's it's nice to see some of the other centers getting some love, especially for things that you normally wouldn't think of them doing. All righty then. We are ready to move on to our third and final round. And to start things off, we are going to talk about the Space Launch System and go to Gene. Yeah, speaking of the Marshall Space Flight Center, um, July 31st, the uh, Space Launch System went ahead and completed what's called a preliminary design review. Uh, it's just to make sure that so far uh, the engineering on the SLS is sound and that uh, uh, basically all the engineers in the project are barking up the right tree, if you will. I've gone through a couple of these things in uh, uh, from in, in other projects that I've, I've encountered in my uh, in my work life, and they are really, really soul searching, painstaking uh, events that you want to make sure that you've got all your you know eyes dotted and t's crossed for. The good news is that the Space Launch System did pass uh, PDR, and that is a significant uh, uh, milestone indeed. Um, it basically greenlights the project and puts the uh, 
uh, a date of um, 2017 uh, for the very first SLS uh, Orion launch uh, in in uh, you know definitely in in sight. So it looks like the uh, this is going to occur. I've, I'm looking at a, a report from Space News, uh, basically saying the next milestone is. Uh, where NASA is going to grant the uh, the program authority to move from formula from its formulation to an implementation point, um, and that is uh, due to happen shortly. Uh, and uh, also, it marks a point where NASA is expected to publicly release the cost uh, for the estimated program. So, on that note, uh, the SLS kind of sort of ran into some interesting scrutiny and i'm looking at an article here from eric berger from uh the uh houston chronicle well he stumbled across some numbers that uh the national space society's john strickland put together and uh well i'm not even too sure uh, john put these together you know on on nss time or as an NSS representative or not, or just out of sheer curiosity, uh, I'm acquainted with with uh, John Strickland over the years. We've kind of sort of you know, run into each other at uh, various international space development conferences. So he's not a he's not a slouch. I'll give I will say that um, Strickland went through this whole sort of bean counting, if you will, on how much the SLS is going to cost overall in his estimation. And, uh, well, he, in his report, I'm going to, and I'm looking at this matrix now, and he is, he's looking at this on the basis that SLS will fly once every four years. He estimates that the Orion capsule with its, you know, the ATV derivative service module and escape system will run about a billion dollars. The SLS first core stage and upper stage also add about a billion dollars. The annual operating and launch facility maintenance costs will be at $8 billion over four years. Now, keep in mind, he doesn't expect this booster to fly, you know, the same uh, flight rate we had on shuttle. This thing is going to fly only once every four years. One-seventh the share of the development cost, he figures, will be about $4.3 billion. Now, if you tally that all up, it cost $14.3 billion per launch to launch the space launch system. Uh, and uh, Eric Berger looked at this, and he was sort of scratching his head a little bit. Um, you know, the he, he, he kind of looked at, at Strickland's numbers and said, you know, he that uh, he concludes that um, NASA's not going to have any money to do an L1 or L2 base, or even a lunar base, or go to Mars for that matter. Um, and NASA's SLS costs as much as 15 times uh, the amount that, say, Falcon Heavy, which I believe is capable of launching uh, 60 tons into low Earth orbit, where the first iteration of SLS will be launching 70 tons into low Earth orbit. Uh, the Generation 2 SLS is going to be launching 130 tons. Um, but 
Eric Berger at the uh, Houston Chronicle basically raises the alarm and says, you know, at these numbers, the SLS is, is unsustainable. And especially for an agency, and he writes, quote, especially for an agency right now that is straining under the button burden of budget sequestration. Um, he basically brought this up with, uh, he basically a- asked, uh, uh, Dan Dumbacher, who is the um, Deputy Associate Administrator for Exploration Systems, that very question. And I'm going to quote from, from Eric's article at uh, Dumbacher's reply, quote, we have a tight budget to work, work with. That budget allows us to build the space launch system and the Orion, and, and the Orion will fly on the SLS. Once we get these two vehicles built, we'll have the foundation capabilities two of the key elements we're going to need for the human exploration beyond low-Earth orbit. Once we get into to the operations phase, the budget wedge, so to speak, opens up, and that's when we start developing the next elements that we need for, for exploration, habitats, landers, etc. Um, but in order to do that, the first step is SLS and Orion. Um, well, as uh, Berger writes, one can sort of sympathize with Dumbacher. He's just following orders and um, uh, as as ordered from from Washington. And Washington has, you know, the headquarters, NASA headquarters is getting its orders from the Obama administration. But he he gives us this warning. And this is going under the pretext that uh, Strickland's numbers are correct. For goodness sake, somebody needs to inject some reality into this discussion. And I am in firm agreement with this. If if indeed these numbers are correct, we have a problem here. And maybe we're going about this the wrong way. And maybe somebody in, independently has to come in and check this out and make sure that these numbers are correct. I know we're not going to find out for at least another, what, another year at least, if these numbers are correct. Because that's, I believe, when NASA is going to going to re, you know release its its cost projections. But uh, this is something we're just going to have to watch and and see what's going on. But I can already hear the folks, you know, um, saying that we're that we've been doing this the wrong way all along, applauding at at these uh, at at the at the statement. Um, what do I think? Um, do we abandon SLS? I don't know. Do we? Th- I don't know. I don't think so. Um, but if these numbers are correct, I don't know. Well, again, that that still leads remains to be seen in plain English. So we're just gonna have to watch this and see what happens with it. But uh, I'll have to also do my, my own homework and my own analysis on this and see what I can come up with. Let me just say, I hope these numbers are wrong because a non-reusable vehicle should not cost more per flight than what was considered a very impractical and overpriced option with the space shuttle. Yeah, and and we're talking about a vehicle that, you know, will it survive an eight or ten year development cycle? That's another question, too. I mean, we, we are, like it or not, come 2017... We are going to have a change of administrations here in, in this in this country, and um, I mean we we've changed gears in the in, in mid stride before. Uh, we spent nine billion dollars on Constellation, for instance, and uh, it, the plug was pulled. Um, 
is this project going to go down the same way? I don't know. So we're, that, that's another that's another gotcha that that's sort of looming over the horizon. So we're, that's another thing we're going to have to watch. Well, I mean, with the test flight coming in about a year or less, I'm hoping that at this point that we don't cancel the program. I mean, then again, we did have one test flight with Aries, but still, at this point, I, I feel like we can't cancel another program that we need to continue. And again, I'm hoping that this is just a gross overestimation and that NASA's numbers are less. But then again, that will bring into question the validity of all of the numbers. And no matter what, this is going to cause some fun controversy and no one's going to end up winning. Yeah, that's that's the well, hopefully there's the winner might be the fact that we finally get the interplanetary transportation system back that we kind of threw away in 19 in the 1970s. Uh, so in essence, there is a win here. But the the idea is, are we are we developing this large system? Which, by the way, we don't have a defined purpose for. I just thought I'd stick that one in there. Um, do we develop this large system that might be uh, impractical to operate uh, and leave ourselves vulnerable to the fact that we might not have enough money to do anything meaningful with it? You know, it, it's it's like buying. I guess it's like buying the 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 expensive sports car. When you might want to go ahead and think about the, you know, the kind of interesting looking sedan, uh, but you buy the expensive sports car and realize, my Lord, this thing is so expensive to maintain and, you know, trade down. So uh, I don't know. And I don't know if we've got this option to trade down. The big thing that we have to do finally is pick a sustainable path. And, you know, here's a novel thing. Kind of stick with it. And we haven't done that yet. So, um, again, something we're going to have to watch, something we're going to have to pay attention to. Alrighty then. So, we're going to finish off with one final story here, and that is about the predecessor to the SLS, which is the Space Shuttle. Now, I'm assuming that most of you know of the Space Shuttles by now, if you're a longtime listener of the show or a longtime space fan in general. You'll know of Columbia, Challenger, Discovery... Endeavor, Atlantis, Enterprise even. If you're really into it, you may know of Explorer, which is now going to be renamed in Houston. But have you heard of Dream Mission? I can tell you, neither had I until just today when I had heard of the space shuttle that is up for sale. It is a one-half scale model of the space shuttle Atlantis, and it is a mobile exhibit. This is 100% true. This is an auction currently going on on eBay, where it's a 65-foot-long mobile shuttle coming with a transporter as well. It's got a whole bunch of computers inside and stations and HD TVs and light bars and smoke that comes out of tails and an inflatable um, vertical stabilizer, a whole bunch of video monitors, surround sound, DVD players so you can come up with your own shows, or you could use the show that's provided with actual launch and then a tour of the ISS, and there's tablets that can be set up with interactive things such as touring the ISS. And it could all be yours for the simple, easy price of $350,000. 
of course, the caveat that goes along with it is that you must pick it up in Lee's Summit, Missouri, and you can only pay with Discover Card. So anybody overseas, um, you can tow it over the water. Um, well, then you deserve a Nobel Prize, but uh, I'm sorry for all the overseas listeners. And anyone in the U.S., if you can afford it, buy it. And if not, my suggestion is we try and get this to a museum. Yeah, Sawyer, a gentleman by the name of uh, Guido Schwartz uh, brought this one to my attention on on Facebook and er, earlier today, and I, I I posted it on my page, and and that was my the first thing I thought of was a uh, was a Kickstarter project because uh, 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 Mr. Schwartz was saying that he too would have liked to have you know perhaps get this to a museum somehow. That was that was the first thing I thought of too. I mean, locally, there's about uh, you know, three or four museums I can name right off that I would love to see this in. Um, and $350,000 is the starting price, boys and girls. Um, that's what, where the bidding starts at. Uh, the reason why I think it's also so high is that you get your own Peterbilt to kind of sort of tow this thing around if you, if you want to use it as a, forgive the, uh, comparison, but a sort of traveling challenger center where you could theoretically run missions from there and so on. But uh, uh, it would be a really cool Kickstarter project if one can go ahead and do that. The problem is I think the, the auction is only good, if I'm looking at the page here correctly, it's only good for about six days. So I'm not sure that you can get a Kickstarter project up and going and actually be effective in about six days' time. Um, but it, it, this is just too cool not to have this at a museum. Uh, it really is. The, the, a lot of uh, TLC went into it. I mean, the, there are actually special effects inside the thing. I think there's some sort of dry ice machine or some sort of smoke machine inside uh, the vehicle that you can run to. Then the ventilation system apparently purges it almost instantly. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity for fun with this if your pockets are deep. So uh, if you're a museum out there listening to this, this could be a really cool investment if you're trying to go ahead and get uh, kids excited about uh, about space flight. So I just there are times like this I wish I had about five hundred thousand dollars lying around I didn't need. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the only time, but I know what you mean. And uh, keeping in mind that, as you mentioned, six days, it does end August 11th, 2013 at 7.40 p.m. Pacific time. So we can find it a new home, even if you can't pay for it. The goal is that hopefully we can spread this around and find somebody or some place that is willing to put up the money for it and use this as a great education tool. Because it's definitely, I, I understand your comparison, it's kind of like a challenger center but not exactly but it can be used as a great teaching tool just based off of looking at it and if nothing else it's pretty darn cool looking yeah the the going joke sawyer too with us is picture this in some sort of trailer park somewhere <laughs> <laughs> as a trailer home i live in it i'd happily make that my home at this point makes two of us actually <laughs> all right we'll talk about getting a landlord deal later then um, I have to say, before we end this, there is a thing on eBay that says, have one to sell, sell it yourself. If you do have one to sell that's a little cheaper, we'll take it. 
And on that note, that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Gene McCulka. Fun night, Sawyer. Fun night. I hope everybody had a blast out there listening to this because I, I had a blast making this show. Um, don't forget the Perseids. This uh, coming up on the uh, 11th and 12th uh, of uh, of this week. So uh, get out on out there and take a look. Keep in mind the peak is the 12th, but you can see it for a couple days before and after, especially if you are somewhere that is clear and away from a lot of light pollution. So for Gene and myself, right near New York City, not as good of a chance. Mark We're- in Florida, a lot better chance. And thank you as well for joining us. Speaking of which, Mark Ratterman. Yeah, and the funny thing is, of uh, of all of us, I'm the one who needs the most reminders to look up. And I live out in a country with pretty good skies, and I just forget. <laughs> I had to look and see what the uh, next few sighting opportunities were for the ISS, because I realized I hadn't paid any attention to it for a while. And I've heard of the Perseids and forgotten about him, and I'm glad you brought it up again. So maybe it'll stick in my head long enough to to see him this time around. Anyway, thanks. Enjoyed it. Hopefully, because this is supposed to be one of the better years for it, with the chance of up to a hundred meteors an hour at its peak. So definitely go out and look up, and also if you uh, get a chance, take a look and wink at the moon, because today's recording date happens to also be the birthday of Neil Armstrong, who would have been 83. And another anniversary is on August 6th or 5th, depending on what time zone you are in. The Mars Curiosity rover is celebrating its first year on Mars. So those seven minutes of terror have turned into one year of awesome pictures and science as well. So congratulations to the entire team there. And with that, that now does bring this episode to its conclusion. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll be here next time. Until then, though, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.